tonight on Unsolved Mysteries, Dreams of Reincarnation, Rookie Police Death, and Thumper the Outlaw Biker. I'm your co-host, Crystal. And I'm your other co-host, Robert. And this is Reenacted, an Unsolved Mysteries podcast. Um, Robert, it feels like it's been ages since we last recorded an episode. I know, hasn't it? Like, <laughs> it, at least over 24 hours. Um, yeah, I think I think we, we did manage to hit that mark. Because um, we started at 11.30 a.m. yesterday. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And today, and right now it's noon. Yeah. Noon. So um, I still have my morning voice. I'm sorry, listeners. Um, I tried to... Tried to Is that what that was? Like, when, when we first started <clears throat> Skype, I thought, like, you kind of sounded sad or, or something. No, it's just... Uh, you ever wake up, like, congested? That's usually how I wake up. And then it takes... You're th- this is the first time I'm speaking out loud. Oh, so, I see. Um, yeah, so you, you got to get the coffee going. You got to drink some water. I, I drank my coffee, but I'm still a little, still a little morning voice. So, oh, interesting. Yeah, even though it's noon, but here, but here we are. Um, Robbie, this was a pretty wild episode. Yeah. Oh, wild! Uh, in that it deviated from the unsolved mysteries format by quite a bit um yeah i was gonna say wild in that um it's uh the first half an hour is comprised of a ton of bullshit uh so there's that oh i'm sorry was that a spoiler what we're about to talk about Um, well (laughs) you know the thing is that well it's it's it was sort of what I notice. I mean, we've had some long segments before, but this was like a case where I don't re- distinctly recall ever Robert Stack like coming in halfway through a segment and basically being like, uh, you know, after the commercial break, we'll hear more about this or something. This was this was a double segment. Like they they mm-hmm. they used up two segment slots on yeah. this. They sure um, did. On what is essentially just like a woman's midlife crisis. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to jump to any early conclusions, uh, but that seems accurate. So this is we're going to be talking about season two, episode sixteen, because um, we're not very good about ever talking about what episode Unsolved Mysteries were on. We mean to do that yeah. so much. I'm not. Uh, I'm not sure we did it in the last episode. So season two, episode sixteen. Um, the first segment is an unexplained segment, um, yeah. even though I would argue and say that it can very easily be explained. Uh, so, so this woman, she's a uh, nurse in Macon, Georgia. Her name is um, Georgia Rudolph, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and um, the way that she has styled herself for her segment and, and in general is very reminiscent of Delta Burke from Designing Women. <laughs> oh my God. You should greet them at the door in something seductive and skimpy. Then don't let anything happen that night. And when he asks you out for the next time, tell him you're busy. It never hurts to hurt them a little in the beginning. She has have been having weird but very specific dreams uh, mm-hmm. for her entire life, allegedly, about a, uh, a young woman um, at the turn of the century. The Half of the segment is just recounting her dreams, which I don't think people like to hear about other people's dreams. I've been told that is boring and they don't want to hear it. I like to hear about other people's dreams personally. Um, I like. To oh, hear. interesting. I'll yeah. have to keep that in mind. Yeah, but, um, but like, are you one of those people that's like, don't tell me about your dream, I don't care. Hmm, well, I guess I don't feel like I get overly bored when people tell me about their dreams, but I, I feel like usually the only circumstances in which people tell me about their dreams is if they're truly exceptional, like mm-hmm. somehow they involved me. Or they just had something completely wild. Uh, I imagine if I was in a situation where someone's just telling me about the dream they had every single night, I probably would get a little short about that. And yeah, no, I'm well, this, I have to say though, like, even though we're not really people who, I, I mean, even though people don't really like hearing about dreams. In some ways, the depictions of the dreams were the most interesting aspect of the segment for me because we at least we got some historical costuming going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was uh, a uh, a stern boat. Oh yeah, yeah, like the. I don't uh, think I really got that right, but it's like a it's like a river boat, it's like with the paddle wheel. With the paddle, yeah, which. Uh, I don't know. Did you hear? Like, I could have sworn the first time I was listening to this, I heard some reference to like uh, Georgia having never seen one before. Yeah. Which I feel like is kind of bullshit. I mean, yes, <laughs> she probably has never seen one in person. Maybe. Right. I mean, there's plenty of people who, who can say that, but I gotta feel like she's seen a movie that has a paddle boat in it. Yeah, so, or a picture, or, or a painting. Picture. She knows, she knows what they are. Yeah. I mean, listen, listeners, just close your eyes and think about an old timey paddle wheel steamboat. I bet you can picture one. Okay. Moving on. Um, (laughs) so, so Georgia goes on to recount like these repetitive dreams she had. Some of the features of the dreams were she is in old timey clothing. She's with her grandmother it's and apparently, yes. like, sometimes, like she, like, she has dreams as a little girl, but then sometimes as, like, an 18-year-old woman. Yeah, I was very confused yeah. by this. Yeah, I, so. I guess I guess she had, like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I was sort of having to piece it together myself. I guess she just had sort of dreams throughout for this entire, from parts of this woman's entire life. Yeah, well, I mean, that's also presuming it's the same woman. Oh, you think maybe there's, like, different... Uh, you know, like different people's lives intruding on uh, her present time. I, th- I think even injecting and saying it's anyone's life is a bit presumptuous. 
but yeah. that's where we're headed with this segment. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, so, the, so the, yeah, there's various dreams. One of them is she's with her grandmother in a carriage, and she and Georgia describes being able to feel the bumpiness of the carriage and how cold it is. Mm-hmm. Um, later on, she talks about having recurring dreams about being a young woman, and there's a man, and they're on this like paddle wheel boat, and there's a man with a dirty hat. <laughs> and she believes that she as the young woman is in a relationship with the man with the dirty hat um there's also that's kind of it those were like the main players in the dreams right it was like grandma yeah and then man with the dirty hat on the boat on the boat yeah sort of bounces back between those two things um i have to wonder do you think there was like some sort of romance novel involving all those things that Georgia may have read at some point in Um, in her life. You know, I think Robbie, it's just called having an imagination. (laughs) (laughs) So do you think Georgia like was deliberately just trying to get attention or do you think she like legitimately doesn't understand the difference between imagination and memories? Well, I, the way that I thought I, I was sort of, the filter that this story was coming through to me was that um, she has a, has a really active imagination, which I think is a really is fine. It's fine. And she would have made a wonderful romance author herself mm, if she yeah. had chosen to like sort of articulate these things in writing. Um, she also struck me as somebody who's like deeply empathetic. Okay. Uh, but That's I think, I think before we like really break down what her deal is, they kind of throw some details in here that start to make a little more sense of what George's deal is. Um, she had been given up for adoption or mm-hmm. was, was like erstwhile taken away from her parents for some reason when she was very young. Um, yeah. And then she was in foster care until the age of five. And then she was eventually adopted by a family. Um, so this is, I feel like this is way more important than they're making it out to be so, in this segment. So, so you feel it's not just a coincidence that, like, she started having these dr- dreams or whatever around the time all this stuff started happening in her life. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I, I mean, my presumption isn't even that she's, like, crying out for attention. It's that these, there's a couple of things going on. She had a lot of gaps to fill about where she came from. Mm-hmm. With virtually no information. And and mentions later on in the segment that she did find her birth parents and presumably corresponded with them or met them. And that these dreams she'd been having had nothing to do with what happened before she was adopted. They were just, too, the details were too specific. Um, but I think in the absence of having this information, you know, as a, as a child, you kind of like, you know, she has an imagination. And she came up with these details to kind of fill in the blanks. Um, the other thing I was thinking about is how like memories are formed. And so I wish I had some like scientific study or something to quote, but I don't. And really when you're remembering something, when you, when you pull up a memory from your file or however you want to think about it, you're Mm -hmm. remembering the last time you remembered it. So each time you pull up that file, it gets a little bit farther away from what may have really happened. The other thing is the more you pull up that file, the more, like, that memory, that pathway um, is created in your brain. So, 
the more you think about something, the more important or real it may seem to you. So I think there's a couple of like really interesting psychological phenomenon going on with this woman that okay. isn't necessary. It may feel very real to her. Yeah. The dream she's having as if they were past life experiences, which is what <laughs> is being implied. But this is really interesting. You're, you're going at this at an angle that I totally did not even think of. I mean, like, you're actually putting forward a proposition where this woman could legitimately be sincere in what she's saying and that this is not all just a big uh, grab for attention. Yeah, I mean, and I, I don't have any evidence to this. Um, and Unsolved Mysteries doesn't well, well, present any evidence about anything. So. Yeah. Um, so, so eventually Sandra and like, Part, it was in like part two of the segment. She gets connected with some kind of psychiatrist who's like, you know, I'm a legitimate psychiatrist. And what we're going to do is um, <laughs> regressive hypnosis therapy. <laughs> so here we go. I just want to point out that the um, guy performing this hypnosis therapy, mm-hmm. he he kind of looks vaguely like the villain from the movie Something Wicked This Way Comes. I'm not familiar with that film. It's it's a, a obscure film that like I think Disney made it. It's kind of it, it's based off a Ray Bradbury story. Oh. Yeah, it, it's it's actually like I saw it once years and years, uh, like when I was like five or six. And it's actually a pretty intense film for like a small kid to be seen. I um, it has like a lot of I don't know imagery and mood to it that. But yeah, this guy basically like looks like a slightly grayer version of the villain from that film who by the way was played by the same actor who plays the high sparrow in game of thrones oh jonathan price jonathan price yes okay yeah so i just remember do you remember when jonathan price was doing infinity commercials in the 90s (laughs) i do not um hold on infinity Jonathan. No, no, look it, look it up after we're done. But that'll that'll make a note. Come back to it anyway. Um, yeah. So back to Delta Burke. I mean Georgia Rudolph's Georgia R- Rudolph. What? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> spaced out. Um, Georgia Rudolph's little story here. So she goes under hypnosis therapy, and she starts pulling up some names of people. And so this young girl or young woman that she's sort of. Whose life she's saying um, she comes up with this name Sandra Jean Jenkins, mm-hmm. um, and then the Dirty Hat Man is her fiance in the dreams, and his name is Tom Hicks. Mm-hmm. Um, somehow I wasn't really paying attention at this point. Sandra ends up getting connected with this reporter, and then they go to this town that's like far away. What town was this? Oh, I think it's Marietta because like that, that was the thing. Like apparently she kept saying this name, Marietta, Marietta, Marietta. And, what? Uh, I, I think Ohio. Okay. That works. It wasn't yeah. she like born in Ohio though. Wasn't that the story? Oh. Like she'd been born in Ohio and then she moved to Georgia. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. I, I don't re- distinctly remember that bit. I mean, cause like if, if, if you're like me, um, 
even though I watched this segment multiple times, each time I got really bored and restless and oh, yeah, got definitely. up and walked, well, walked away several Well, it's because it's someone, times. it's a half an hour of a woman talking about her dreams, which aren't particularly interesting. No, no. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, I mean, that, that seems, seems right. Uh, sure. Okay. So she gets connected with this reporter. The reporter basically is like, okay, we'll look into it and see if there are any people matching these descriptions at the time um, that you're describing, uh, they somehow find a family that owned a shipping line of these paddle wheel boats. Um, they don't find any evidence of a Sandra Jean Jenkins or a Tom Hicks, um, being born or having died during that time in that area. Um, most, and Unsolved Mysteries kind of waves this away by saying like records around the turn of the century were like, sketchy at best Which, uh, uh, I don't know like if yeah if this was the if this was like the turn of the 18th into the 19th century yeah. you might get away with that but by the early 1900s people were getting like birth certificates and stuff yeah so. and especially if you like lived in a town a town and you're, you're it's not like you're out in the you know great frontier of mm -hmm. alaska or something this is in ohio the, ohio's been a state for quite a while by this point right and i i don't know that um, it, this all starts to feel a little too convenient yes uh, well uh, uh, what uh, chris are you saying that <laughs> unsolved mysteries is not asking some hard questions <laughs> in order to maintain a narrative about a segment they're doing uh i might be saying that Honestly, yeah. yeah. Um, so the reporter guy is just like, hey, he's kind of acting as like a sanity check to all of this. He's like, yeah, it could be possible that without having done previous research, this woman could be coming up with these names and details. Um, but he's also saying, like, I can't rule out that somehow she wasn't able to, like, call ahead and start asking questions. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's the all through watching this segment, I was kind of like. You know, like we we kind of get accustomed to thinking about what a like what a marvel it is that we live in the age of Google and we can just look up anything mm -hmm. like quickly. But even with the constraints of the 1980s, I would say that if you wanted to, you know, further the notion that you're a reincarnated version of someone who died a century earlier. Mm -hmm. If you if you hit the local library and newspaper uh, offices, you could probably get what you need in order to pass off. Yeah, I mean, microfiche was a thing. Um, lots of people did lineages back in mm -hmm. the '80s. I mean, this it wasn't impossible to do. I think, I think if anything, the reporter was their last best chance at like tracking some stuff down and asking hard questions, and he didn't seem terribly interested. <laughs> and whatever this woman was dreaming about, which I can understand. Um, <laughs> so the reporter basically shrugs and goes, well, it's possible she could have like known these things ahead of time. Um, so but going back to the regressive hypnosis therapy, Unsolved Mysteries actually was able to record a few sessions between uh, Georgia and her and her therapist. Yeah. And, um, you know, part of the reason that I'm thinking she isn't, this isn't just a cry for attention unless she's like a complete sociopath. And that's not the vibe I'm getting is that she was moved to tears a few times in these recollections, mm. um, during the hypnosis. So 
I do get a vibe from her, though, that's, like, a little bit attention-grabby. Okay. But I'm, I, I believe that she believes what she's saying is sincere. And it's just because she's recalled these dreams so much that they've become, like, these hard and fast memories in her mind that she assumes that this must be some kind of, like, reincarnation situation. Yeah, that seems pretty. That seems like the most reasonable explanation I can come up with. I think. Well, I mean, I didn't yeah. come up with it. You came up with it. Well, but, and then, but yeah, I but, think the reason that she goes to unsolved mysteries or somehow gets connected with unsolved mysteries is because she wants that attention for this. Right. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess if uh, you discovered something really neat, I mean, I, I can't. I have to imagine. <laughs> yeah, like maybe this isn't so much someone came up with something to get attention. But someone had something, you know, what they, you know, what could be considered strange in their life. And there's not really anything else going on in their life. So they did, this is the sort of thing that someone would just talk about all the time. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure I've had like certain themes and reoccurring dreams. Um, actually, I can think of a few, but I'm not like, I'm not connecting it would be like oh this must have happened to me in the past life it's like no they're just certain pathways in my brain are like activated when i sleep and they they're stronger than others and then that's why i keep having these dreams you know but mine are really mundane of like all my teeth falling out or like the brakes going out in my car <laughs> you know what i mean my god you have some horrific dreams uh, yeah but i feel like both of those things are really common like right. those are really common dreams that people have. They're not very specific though. So, um, so the, so the segment kind of wraps up with, um, George's under hypnosis and she says she has a vision of her grandmother's headstone, but then, you know, when she gets to the headstone, she can't read the name on it. Um, they, they go over some other bits of so-called evidence where they find like a family photo of this like girl's school or a steamboat reunion yeah. i don't know what it was <laughs> yeah, i know I'm, i was kind <laughs> I of know what on this that is. myself <laughs> and the girl that you know uh, georgia identifies is like oh that's what i've been dreaming about it's what i've been seeing is the only one that isn't like listed on the roster of names of people photographed in this group photo um under hypnosis uh she reveals that tom hicks has fallen into the river and passed away and that this girl, this um, Sandra Jean Jenkins, is pregnant with his baby. And she ends up committing suicide because her, she didn't want to shame her family. Because she committed suicide, of course, she would have been buried in an unmarked grave. Again, convenient. Um, so there's, there's no evidence that these people ever actually existed. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um... So I'm just going to, like, I don't know, Robbie. I think this woman just has a really active imagination and some, like, vivid dreams, and she's not a lot yeah. going on with her. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the thing. The very first time we see her on the segment, like, she's just sit sitting at home, and she looks bored out of her mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I mean, that pretty much set the... The, the way I was going to look at this segment from that point onwards. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's a gigantic waste of the viewer's time. <laughs> it, it really is. Um, like, 
I'm not even like making jokes about it just because it was so dumb. This whole episode we're watching is very sparse. Yeah. Um, and I mean, certainly this is a big part of the reason why giving a double segment length length segment to to this to the this this I yeah. mean. Even one segment would would have been stretching it. I mean, I feel this like this is more worthy of back in earlier in the season when we were getting those sort of ten minute, like eight to ten minute mini segment things mm-hmm. tacked on at the end. This is what this feels more appropriate for. Definitely, yeah, yeah. And considering the like sort of heaviness of the two segments that follow this one. Right, right. Uh, gosh. So did, did you like this segment then? Uh, no. <laughs> did you? I mean, I guess, the, like you say, the hypnosis sessions are a little interesting. Um, just as an examination of those things. Yeah, I don't want to hear about your dreams unless like they're interesting. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Unexplained death. Unexplained death. Yeah. Um, This one takes us to May 7th, 1988, in the town of Mountain Air, New Mexico. It sounds nice, right? It sounds like a place you want to visit. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, it kind of sounds... It sounds like the sort of place that I would, you know... Like it has the positive attributes I would associate associate with New Mexico that that mountain there. Um, but it is, unfor- it is the land of enchantment. Oh, that's right. That is that state's state's nickname. Unfortunately, this small town is what just east of Albuquerque, New Mexico, which puts it in you know prime drug territory orbit if. All the programming I watch on AMC. Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. Definitely. This is sort of foreshadowing the third segment as well. Um, Right. So Steve Sandlin um, was, quote unquote, born to be a cop, which I have to imagine is the opposite of born to be wild. Um, yeah, so you're kind of picturing, like, him in his, uh, little policeman's uniform riding his tricycle, pulling over, uh, kids that are exceeding their speed limit in the playground? Definitely. Yeah, like, I mean, they definitely paint a picture of someone who, whose passion is law enforcement. Like, what was the description? Like, he he would put on his father, father's boots? Mm -hmm. I think, well, his dad was a cop. His da- well, yeah, his dad was a cop. He put on his father's like police par- paraphernalia, and just walked around wearing it all the time as much as he could. So that I mean, that gives you an idea how much the the cop uh, bug was uh, pretty deep in him. Um, that sounds like a thing you should get checked out <laughs> if you've got a cop bug deep in you. <laughs> Look at look at me, the millionaire who can afford to see a doctor about my cop bugs. <laughs> um. So Steve Steve Sandlin, he's uh, he's a rookie on the Mountain Air New Mexico force, mm-hmm. which I don't know what like what size of department is that really? 
you know, it, it definitely it gives the feeling of being like a very small town police department, which considering what we learn later on mm-hmm. and what we've seen so far in this show, uh, show, it seems like the, the fiercest corruption seems to happen with these small town police departments. Yeah, I mean, this... This, uh, I, I started this segment kind of having one opinion, and then I kind of was left at the end of it going, huh. So, um, so yeah, Steve's only on the force for like eight weeks, and, um, and at this point, he's discovered in the police station uh, with a gunshot wound, and he's pronounced dead on the scene yeah. by the EMTs. <clears throat> very strange that he would be shot in the police station, but okay. Um, they interview his mom and his dad. Um, they are trying, the coroner's trying to rule it a homicide, and they're like, no freaking way. This guy didn't kill himself. Then the police try to cover their own ass by saying, oh, you know, Steve was known to, like, tool around and play with his gun. <laughs> and I like the, like, the reenactment they did of this. Um, where they, you know, they show Steve, like, ha- he has his gun out, and he's kind of, like, you know, moving it around in his hand. And, uh, I mean, it, it's it's just, like, a s- couple of steps less flagrant than when they've shown Chief Wiggums on The Simpsons, <laughs> like, scratching himself with his gun. Yeah. And, like, yeah. Uh, we're out of coffee. Ah, well, I'll just drink this warm cream. Um... Uh, I would also like to add at this point, the actor that they have playing Steve Sandlin in this um, segment is very, like, classic 80s honk. Uh, with the hair and the... Yeah, yeah. You know, very broad... honky. Oh, interesting. The... Are you saying he's, like, the most attractive man in this episode? Um, Probably. Yeah. Mm. Def- actually, definitely. He's the That's... most attractive reenactor we've had in a few episodes. Yeah, I mean, I can't. It does feel. I mean, admittedly, there. It's not like there's been a pretty deep bench for for competition in that regards. Um, um, I do want to also take an aside because at some point they interview uh, Steve Sandlin's girlfriend at the time, Michelle. Well, it doesn't matter what her last name is, but um, did you know? Did you have to like take a moment with her hair? I mean, uh, this was like, imagine the most like ratted out blonde hair you can't. I mean, her hair looked fucking flammable. <laughs> Keep Michelle away from an open flame. Uh, are you thinking there was a lot of hair care, care products going I don't, on? I, I mean, her hair would probably like break off in your hand. That's how brittle this was. It was like, it was a yard sale. It was everywhere and it was too blonde. I mean, it was just, it was just like she... Like the 80s were a truck that ran into her head and <laughs> created her hair. Um, sorry, Michelle. I hope you got that shit worked out later in life. Okay, but back to <laughs> back to the case. Um, so Steve's dad is basically like throwing down the gauntlet to the police department. And he's saying that Steve knew too much about something going on and and they and his parents and his girlfriend and his friends really believe that he was murdered because he yeah. got involved in something and i'm kind of rolling my eyes at this point because i'm like well he was probably just a young guy and he probably killed himself with his own gun idiot yes please go ahead 
Oh yeah, no, no. I was gonna say, well, in the uh, coroner's uh, um, examination, they find a couple of things. One that his hands do not have anywhere near the amount of powder residue that you would typically see in someone who has fired a, you know, shot a pistol in their hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the other thing was like that the the gun, like they they estimated that the gun that fired and killed him from two feet away, which I mean, doesn't sound like much, but if you like, if you try to like hold your hand out two feet from your, you know, head and aim, aim something at it, that's kind of like, that's pretty, I mean, I'm not saying that's impossible or anything, but that's kind of, that's so awkward and not at, and like they point out, not at all what, what you would typically see in a suicide. No, Uh, I don't, I don't think I could get something pointed at my head and two feet away at the same time. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, apparently the eternal attorney general refused to ro- rule out suicide. Mm-hmm. And we uh, are given the suggestion that this may have something to do with some, some form of corruption going on in the town of Mountain Air. Well, yeah. And then they go on to actually start giving us important details. <laughs> Halfway through right. this, right. which is at some point um, right before he died, Stephen made a traffic stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just he went to some bar to pick up, you know, get an easy DUI of somebody getting in their car. He found that this person had some weed in their car, and then, <clears throat> excuse me, then you know the police following up ended up getting a warrant and then raiding that guy's house. And that guy had like fifty four pounds of weed in his house for like a street value of a hundred thousand dollars. So Steve is the one that kind of like led to that. I guess after that, Steve started getting death threats, and there's in the reenactment, it's like there's a note scrawled <laughs> and pasted to his door at home. So he like wasn't even sleeping at home because he was spooked. Yeah. Legitimately, yeah, and then uh, he winds up dead. So, right. Well, and they mentioned that like around the same time, he found out that the, uh, the the department was being investigated for how they handled evidence. Mm-hmm. And so, certainly, like like in my mind, I, I put it that like there was some sort of con- conjunction between the department being investigated for how they handled evidence and all the as well as all these bags of weed that got um, confiscated because of uh, his original traffic stop. This leads us to uh, a very strange uh, thing involving his apartment, which is like the police, they, I'm, I'm still vague about this. They did a search of his apartment, right? Yes. And after as, he I, died, they did yeah. a search. Yeah. After he died. And as far as they were concerned, uh, they didn't. Uh, their official thing was they didn't find anything. Mm-hmm. And then so then later his family's looking around the apartment, and they they notice two things. One like the tapes he made of all his um, traffic stops and whatnot mm-hmm. are missing. And then two, there's two big bags of weed in one of the drawers in this kitchen. Yeah, there's these big bags of lawn cuttings that they're trying to pass off as marijuana. <laughs> are, are they lawn cuttings? I, I don't I, know what they are, but I mean, that would be the crappiest weed 
you could imagine. It was oh, really? just all it was just like all stems and seeds, dude. Like no. Oh. <laughs> That's some bad stuff. Um but of course. Uh yeah, so the, so yeah, his family finds all this stuff missing or planted in his apartment and it raises more eyebrows. And then they go back to the police chief who's been interviewed intermittently, sort of downplaying any foul play that may have happened. And he, he seems kind of like in a controlled rage starts to describe how he willingly submitted to a polygraph with the FBI. Right. Because some folks around the time of Steve's death had identified that the chief's car was parked in front of the station where he was mm-hmm. killed. Um, mm-hmm. So there were several witnesses that said they saw the chief's car out there. But then the chief is saying he was at some sort of high school event where with hundreds of other people and that he per- he could provide witnesses to say that he was there. Which right. just that statement alone is kind of like he could provide or people <laughs> have come forward to say he was there. <laughs> wow. OK, you're, you're suggesting that, uh, well, I mean, yeah, certainly the the wording of it is a little suspicious. It kind of, Mm -hmm. it actually, it reminds me of, um, I was at uh, the, was it the Carson City Court a a few weeks ago as like sitting in the back where, you know, you can sit and watch. Um, Don't ask me why, because that'll lead us to a whole, whole new story. But I was watching, you know, these these series of different guys who had been arrested get cycled through, um, and uh, you know, it, it was kind of fascinating just to see like the public defender and whatever guy from the DA's office just sort of almost working in tandem to just like get through the workload rather than like actually trying to fight each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, what the first first case that I saw was some guy. Who you know? I mean, he was he was big and you know, head shaved, and I guess he was there because he had violated a protective order by like his ex had texted him, and like a, a dope he texted her back, mm-hmm. so he got scooped up, and you know he was he explained his situation, blah blah blah, and you know every everyone in the car room was like, okay, okay, we'll put a thing on your leg or something, and you know just don't you know don't interact with her at all again mm-hmm. um you know if, if if she texts you don't text back mm-hmm. text you know contact us and let us know mm-hmm. um but he uh uh but there was this one point and and when he was talking with the judge he asked this question and it was um the question was like now, suppose she asked to have the order removed or, you know, something like that. And the way he asked it, like, you could see the judge suddenly, like, sort of stand up in his seat. Like, okay, yeah, you know, like, is this guy, like, contemplating, like, threatening this woman so that she gets the order removed sort of thing? Mm-hmm. And and it was, you know, like, the way he asked it, this, the way this sheriff talks about like you know um i can produce witnesses and stuff Mm -hmm. it kind of has that same sort of tone to it Hmm. as the as the guy who was asking about the protection order yeah interesting yeah you know it's sort of like a uh there you know there's there's some sort of thing 
you know hidden there's a layer beneath that uh what what's on the surface of what's just been said yeah i definitely agree with that i'm i'm not and i'm also not trying to say like the police chief was directly involved no. but i'm just saying no. like he's has perhaps more information than he's letting on Right. Um, it just sounds, yeah, it sounds more like, you know, this, this department just has a lot of dysfunction in it. Like, yeah. I mean, the chief's not like guilty of a murder. He's just really incompetent and has allowed the situation to get totally out of hand. <laughs> yeah. But it still remains that Sandlin was murdered in the police department. Well, yeah, yeah I know someone did it. <laughs> so, and notice I'm saying murdered because Robbie, do we get an update or the segment? We don't, right? No, like, we do. except well, we do well, get well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, yes, yes. Uh, sorry, sorry. I, I, I answered that in the wrong way. We do get an update, but it's not like you know we found out what happened. It's just that yeah. the um, New Mexico uh, changed the thing so that like they they consider it a homicide. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so a homicide happened in the police station. Yeah, um, and the case remains open to this day. Right. <laughs> you would think getting killed in a police station would be like the killer would be found pretty quickly, but did you like this segment? Um, I thought it was interesting. Yeah, I thought it, it was, was a lot more interesting than the preceding segment. Yeah, it's a shame <laughs> that this segment was only like five minutes long. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> because we did get we got a lot of value out of those five minutes. Yeah, it was it was pretty jam packed. Um, I would most certainly like to hear about the events preceding this guy's uh, death, as opposed to a woman's right. middle aged woman's dreams for thirty minutes. <laughs> and really, because the thing is, is like which which segment are we more likely to like? get a resolution from someone who's watching yeah 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 well if only we'd gotten more time and information abbreviated as the segment about uh, uh, Steve may have been, mm -hmm. this felt like even more abbreviated. Yeah, but um, but this, I feel like, is the bread and butter of what Unsolved Mysteries does. So it's a uh, wanted segment, mm -hmm. I think, and um, it's, it's basically they cut to the chase. They're looking for a man. Um, they know who they're looking for. His name is Jonathan Brown. He goes by the name of Thumper. Thumper. Um, he is 34 years old at the time, and he is part of the Hessian Motor Club. Mm -hmm. um, and he uh, sets up meth labs and cooks meth, <laughs> and that's what right. he does. So I, I like the you know it's interesting they they depict like some of his bikers setting up one of the meth labs, and they they have a description uh, from one of the you know investigators or whatnot about how basically he had them do all the setup work so that he could just come in, do the cook, take the stuff and leave. Uh, thus not, you know, not only like mitigating his exposure of getting caught, but also apparently reducing the amount of actual physical labor he has to do. Yeah. So, so he's definitely on the top of the pyramid in this, uh, this organization. Um, yeah, I mean, this is this is pretty cut and dry. The 
the reason that I guess the cops came to Unsolved Mysteries is because this guy had evaded capture a couple of times. Um, yeah. The first time was in Lancaster, California, uh, mm. which just see which driven through really seems like prime meth cooking territory. Oh, really? I don't know anything about it. Can yeah, you give I think a description it's... of this shitty small town. <laughs> I haven't spent a lot of time there, but it's like up in the mountains right before you get to L.A. If you're coming down the five from mm. the northern part of California. Okay. I think. Don't, All right, but don't, yeah, don't at me if I'm wrong. I'll look it up on a Google map. I'll figure this out after the episode. I don't, so, I don't somewhere in that vicinity. Yeah, yeah, okay. it's down here somewhere. Anyway, it's up in the mountains. Um, and so the cops go after him, and he tries to say, "Oh, this all this acetone I'm carrying into this trailer. <laughs> all this, six containers of it. <laughs> this is not mine. I'm just like holding it for a friend. Don't worry about it." <laughs> um, I do you remember how he gets away at that point? Well, I believe in this circumstance, because they, you know, they apprehended him. Um, I think what it was is he made his, he made bond on just like whatever initial charges they had, right? And he was able to leave before they discovered the the depth and width of like his operation, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. So I think that was in '87. Um, in '88, they catch up with him again. This time in Medford, Oregon. Oh, really? <laughs> Medford, Oregon! We should have a sound effect every time it's a Medford. Gosh, uh, what would be the appropriate sound effect? I, I guess considering the nature of the previous segments, maybe some sort of old-timey baseball-like thing. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, or, or, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, but, they, so, they, so they catch up with him at like some drug lab house in Medford, and there's a very action-packed reenactment. Oh yeah, uh, of yeah. the police like, like kicking down the door, and then like the motor club people shooting back at them, and like two police go down, and then they shoot some tear gas into the trailer. Um, mm -hmm. I don't. Is this at the point where um, Thumper gets away again? I think I think he managed to like he 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 managed to get out of there before the police raided the place. Oh okay. I, I, I mean, I, that's actually, that's strange. I can't distinctly recall. Um, I mean, I got the thing. I, I think part of it was the segment was just so short that yeah. like, <clears throat> it kind of feels like we went directly from this to like, here are some pictures of, you know, yeah. um, uh, Thumper. And they even do a little reenactment where you see the type of dog that he's, he, 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 yeah. he apparently cannot <clears throat> like, not drive around with. Well, they're very specific. He said they said he had a Neapolitan Mastiff, and then they show a bunch of pictures of him. So they, I mean, really give a lot of detail, at least in a short period of time, about what this guy looks like. Um, so then, at the end of this three-minute segment, we get an update. Mm-hmm. Yes. And due to the broadcasts of the story, Jonathan Brown, aka Thumper, was picked up and sentenced to 30 years in prison because of the show. Mm -hmm. Which, so. which is, which is a satisfying ending, but I got a little bit of uh, info to share with you. Cause oh, I don't, okay. did you I, do uh, the R word? Did you do research? Uh, yeah. I mean, most, <laughs> I, I couldn't help it because you know, it's been so long since we've had a Medford, Oregon say, uh, segment. <laughs> You're right. I just, Oh really? Yeah, I mean, initially this started out, I was just trying to look up places to mention in um, uh, Medford, Oregon. Mm -hmm. uh, I, cause, but I think I, because I ran out of restaurants. Um, 
Though, though, if you're ever in town, if you check out Pear Blossom Park, that's where I ran into the traveling like um, promotional tour for the Portland Trailblazers. Mm-hmm. So if you're in Medford, Oregon, and you need some time to kill, go check out Pear Blossom Park. Imagine you know a bunch of those like canopy set portable canopies with like tables and stuff and a little portable basketball hoop and basketballs being bounced around and you know kids running around the place and that's that's what it looked like to me in mid-september 2015 oh really um but no uh sorry uh what i found just sort of briefly looking up the case is do you want to guess where jonathan thumper brown was apprehended (laughs) Uh, is it something that we've talked about on the pod before? Mm-hmm. Was it at the sports museum? No, it was not at the sports museum. But if I recall, uh, if it, I think if we recall correctly, our two previous Medford cases, like after the people went on the run, didn't they both involve, um... Uh, they both involve those guys going down to Southern Nevada, yes? Um, I think one was Scottsdale, Arizona, and then the other one was, like, Tonopah, Nevada. What? What are you talking about? No, 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 no. Or Lake Mead or something. Well, yeah, know. like, one of them got, like, I think it was, was it, it was Steve Cox was arrested in, in Lake Mead. Uh-huh. Uh, but then, like, the other guy, Dennis Walker... Um, Seer, like, was, wasn't, who, who was the person who committed suicide in Vegas? I, I don't know, you're just possibly describing thousands of people. <laughs> well, yes, yes, I mean, thousands of people do commit suicide in Vegas every day after a hard thing at the tables, but, um, I, I think, like, Dennis Walker, the original Medford shuffle, yeah. hustle? Medford uh, Hustler, yeah. The, the original Medford Hustle. Like, his case, um, like, you know, he went on the run, and they found his body in the, like, the bathtub of a Las Vegas hotel room. I guess he had committed, he may or may not have committed suicide. I guess they, I think they weren't sure. Um, so, you know, like, the first Medford Hustler met his end in, in southern Nevada. Mm-hmm. And then Stephen Cox, who was our second Medford hustler, was apprehended handed, apprehended in Clark County as well. Oh, really? Oh, really? Well, yeah, I mean, Lake, Lake Mead, right? Or, or was he on the Arizona side? Well, he passed through Southern, you know, Southern Nevada. Uh-huh. And Jonathan Thumper Brown was apprehended in Las Vegas. How about that? I wonder if there was, like, some kind of direct flight between Medford and Vegas at the time. You know, I guess that would probably make the most sense. Like if you're if you're trying to get out <laughs> town really quickly, go to the Medford Airport, which is a, a pleasant little airport. Um, I mean, it, it's a, it's a lot smaller than like Reno Tahoe, mm-hmm. um, but but it's kind of nice. Um, if you're 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 looking at the list of available flights and you're trying to figure out like where am I going to like try to evade the law? I guess. S- subconsciously Las Vegas probably stands out because, you know, you, you kind of feel, maybe you feel like 
Yeah, there's so much seedy stuff going on there yeah. already. It would just blend in. Well, before it, like, in the 90s became the adult playground that it is, I mean, it was a, it was a pit. <laughs> in oh, right, the, right. In the late 80s, early 90s, let's just be honest. Um, so, well, that is very interesting. Thank you for adding that bit of research, even though, you know, that's not allowed on this show. Well, I, I anticipated that we'd have to eat up some time, seeing as oh, how right, this, was, right, this right. was likely to like this this regular episode of our program was was probably you know potentially in danger of being shorter than some of our mini episodes. Mm, yeah, not a lot to <laughs> yeah. cover. And frankly, I don't have an opinion on most of it except for that first segment. So, well, I mean, uh, we can just move on with our lives, all of us. We can call yeah. it a day. And when I yeah. say all of us, I mean you and I and anyone who may be listening to this <laughs> shit pile of a podcast. Um, <laughs> if you want to get in touch with us, we're at Reenacted Pod. On Twitter, um, we like to hear from you. Um, we also post like pictures and weird, weird stuff. things. That we I, like. I recently posted a episode of "Where in the World Is Carmen Sandiego?" Nice, on there. nice. Um, and we also have a Facebook page. I think still. Yep. The Facebook page basically has the same content as the Twitter page, only maybe sometimes a little less, and uh, posted a little bit later. Cool, cool. And you can get in touch with us at reenactedpod at gmail.com. We do love hearing from you. Um, If you don't do the social media thing, please. And then if you feel like... Five star reviews. Anywhere that you can. If you are a kindergarten teacher and you give out stars for behavior... (laughs) Please give us on your chart five gold stars. We'd appreciate it. Or you can go to you know iTunes. We're still doing the contests once we get to twenty five star reviews. If you indicate somehow uh, your your real name or send us a screenshot of your review to our our pod email, we're gonna send a thing. We're gonna do a random drawing and then we're gonna send a thing. So yeah, and, and I realize. Yes, and while you know, uh, quite a few of you have responded f- for that, and you know, just for what is just a Twilight Zone radio dramas one dollar off coupon from Hollywood Video, mm-hmm. I there is going to be a little bit more to this um, uh, prize than just that. The thing you just mentioned, I kind of feel like if you are a teacher, and somehow like you are so inclined on your little classroom chart. If you write out the name of our podcast and give us like five stars and take a picture and send it to us, I feel like that merits at least some sort of shout out on the program. (laughs) Yeah, we definitely (laughs) would like acknowledge you for sure. But you, you'd probably then like immediately want to white it out after taking that picture, unless mm-hmm. <laughs> like the dean of students or the principal comes along. The and, dean like, of students at a kindergarten. Um. Well, uh, date like Dayton Elementary School has a dean. Uh, I mean, granted, I mean the school uh go, does pre K through sixth grade. So okay. I, I mean, well, then yeah. I'll eat. My, I'll eat my foot or put my foot in my mouth. However, you say that in English. Well, I mean, I suppose, I mean, you know, if it was just a strictly a pre-K program, yeah, that would seem strange. 
Hey, Robbie, do you want to do the thing? Oh, God. Uh, yeah. Um, shit, I didn't write down what he said this week. Uh, what did Stack say? Say me. Thing. Um, if you, uh, mystery... Join us again next week for another edition of Unsolved Mysteries. Sure. All right. Ha, 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 ha.